talking and it don't make sense Tell me what it's all about The truth is stranger the closer you get To the who, what, where, when, how Absurd is the word, guess what I heard Absurd is the word, guess what I heard Guess what I heard Guess what I heard Hey guys, welcome to episode 20 of Know What I Heard. I'm Jamie, and on this episode, I'm joined by my good friend and scientist, Rich McGee. Rich basically takes science and dumbs it down so I can understand it, um, which I really appreciate. And this episode, we're talking about LSD. Yep, that LSD, the drug. It's got a very interesting history and what looks to be a very interesting future. So Rich kind of walks me through that and um, explains all kinds of really cool stuff. And before anybody trips out, pun totally intended, we are in no way condoning the use of illegal drugs. This is just a very interesting topic. So I hope that you enjoy it. Here we go. So yeah, you want to get started? Yeah, let's get rolling, man. Okie doke. Uh, how do you want to introduce this? Oh, man. Um... <laughs> You're like, hey, Rich is going to talk about really hard drugs like acid. <laughs> it's kind of a weird thing. Just be like, let's talk about LSD. I'll just make up a jingle. Or I can say, you ready to talk about some LSD? Motherfucker? Like that? <laughs> I, I very much am, work? yeah. <laughs> Yeah, let's do it. But (laughs) so before we get started, Jamie, I do want to get a handle on uh, what you know about LSD, which is also known as acid. Um, not a whole lot, to be honest. Mm -hmm. I it's it's not anything that I've ever tried, and um, haven't had much exposure to it, and it's just Mm -hmm. kind of. One of those things I think you kind of see like people tripping or whatever in movies and things, but um, I really, I, I don't know that much about it. Okay. Well, LSD today is mostly known for its recreational use, which is where you'll see it in movies, right? It's not, you know, some patient going to get treatment or anything like that. Um, but uh, it wasn't always just for recreational use. In fact, um, when it, uh, after it first became discovered, it became more popular in the U.S. after it was used in a government-run program called MKUltra, where they were trying to find a mind-control drug. Um, Or, more recently, after MKUltra was shut down, um, there are clinical trials where they're using LSD in conjunction with a specific type of therapy to treat depression, anxiety, and uh, PTSD. Mm Mm-hmm. But before we get to any of that, I actually want to go back to the very beginning, which is a long time before LSD was first discovered. So way back in the day, most people were farmers, or at the very least, they produced a lot of their own food. And the primary food for most families was starches like grains, potatoes, and cassava root. But important to our story are the grains, which can get infected with a purple fungus. And that fungus is also known as ergot. Now, the reason that this is important is that ergot can cause poisoning of humans via a molecule it produces known as lysergic acid. So LSD stands for lysergic acid diethylamide. 
Um, and so it is LSD is a modification of this lysergic acid molecule. Okay. So when people would eat the grains contaminated with this fungus and thereby ingest the lysergic acid, they get a kind of food poisoning called ergotism. And there's some pretty nasty physical side effects from this kind of poisoning. But there's also some mental effects as well, including mania or psychosis. So the earliest known reference that we have to ergotism comes from 857 CE uh, in Germany, where the writer describes a loathsome plague that has afflicted, afflicted the local abbey. Um, this local abbey, likely Lorsch, is actually still standing today, and it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. But if we move forward just a little bit to the Middle Ages, uh, ergotism was given the name of St. Anthony's Fire, uh, which is for the Order of St. Anthony, who were apparently very effective at treating disease, which also indicates that it was a little more common than people would have liked. And so you can see outbreaks throughout history, particularly in areas where rye is the main cereal crop. Um, but there is a very compelling theory that I want to talk about that we'll probably never know the truth to. But it's like way too interesting for me to just pass by. What do you know about the Salem witch trials? Um, not a whole lot. I have been to Salem, Massachusetts, and I have mm. gone to a very creepy museum there. So I know that wasn't it like around 20, 20 ish people were tried and executed because they thought that they were they were witches right. because they were having some kind of crazy behavior. Right. Yes. So the the theory that's that's all actually yeah, that's pretty much what people know about it. So in 1976, uh, Linda uh, Caporal raised the possibility that the witch trials were a direct result of ergot poisoning. Huh. Which is okay. super cool. <laughs> so she compiled a list of all the symptoms reported at the time. And then she basically went through and tried to figure out what could have been a cause if it wasn't just a standard, you know, panic, right? And so she got this list of things, including crawling sensations in the skin, ringing in the ears, hallucinations, muscular contractions, mania, psychosis, and delirium. And so given mm. these symptoms and how well a lot of these match up with ergot poisoning and that rye was a staple grain of the area, she made what I find to be a very compelling argument that the events in Salem were actually caused by ergot poisoning. Wow. Which is like, it's, it's one of those things that like every school child learns about the Salem witch trials. Um, and the fact that it could have been caused by this fungus is unbelievably cool that we could kind of track this down decades later. And of course, we don't yeah. exactly know for sure. So the the behavior of the quote unquote witches, they were just acting strangely. It's not like they were caught in the woods with making potions and like putting curses on people. They were just acting oddly. Yes. So uh, what, what actually ended up happening was people who were in power likely also um, had the symptoms of this. And so paranoia is one of those things that you can get when you're starting to have all these weird things happen or whatever. And a lot of the testimony actually came from kids, which hmm. if you've learned anything about, anything about the satanic panic around the 80s, <laughs> yeah. if you ask kids leading questions, they will answer in the affirmative because they don't want to disappoint adults. And so even if the kids were also experiencing the symptoms, I mean, they were being interviewed by adults who were also experiencing symptoms and kind of being led into this fantastical world uh, where there was a yeah. bunch of witches in town, right? Right, um, yeah. 
we keep learning the same lessons again and again, and we don't seem to retain them. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Um, But so the trials were held between 1692 and 1693. Um, They resulted in the execution of 19 people uh, before the mania eventually passed. And what's absolutely bonkers about this to me is as recently as 2001, so this century, the Massachusetts legislator exonerated five victims of the mass hysteria. That's (laughs) absolutely bonkers to me. And that is like how sticky this event is in the imagination of the American people, right? Like we still talk about it. It's still taught to school kids. And there's never really much of an examination about what caused them. And while we're wrapping up on the subject of uh, ergot, ergotamine is another compound in ergot that is actually still used in medicine today, which is in a drug called cafergot, which is used to treat migraines. Um, And so ergot produces like a bunch of compounds and they have various effects, but two of them cause psychotropic effects. One of them ergotamine, one of them lysergic acid. So yeah, uh, if you would like to move on from lysergic acid, do you want to jump to Switzerland in 1938? Sure. All right. Could you give me a quick overview of what's going on in 1938? Just a general, like, you know, the general feeling of the world. Well, uh, a lot of tension and uh, Mm -hmm. the world's amping up for World War II. Mm -hmm. Other than that, um, I don't know. (laughs) That's... Yeah. And, you know, all of those things are super important if you're like some kind of nerd who's into history. But (laughs) I would actually argue that something of very great importance happened that year that is often missed. And this thing was in Switzerland, lysergic acid diethylamide was synthesized for the first time. So Albert Hoffman was a Swiss scientist who worked for a pharmaceutical company called Sandoz. And his job was basically to just make new drugs uh, for various medical conditions. And for whatever reason, in 1938, LSD, lysergic acid diethylamide, didn't seem very promising at the time. And he just set it aside for five years. Then on April 16th of 1943, he decided to give it a second look and he resynthesized it. Now, I don't know exactly why he decided it would be a thing to try again, given that it had been like five years. But... When he resynthesized it, he absorbed a small amount of LSD through his skin, and he accidentally dosed himself. (laughs) So although he was concerned for his health, he went home to write out the effects and found said effects to be not unpleasant. And after a couple of hours, he felt fine again. So before I get into the next section, I want to take a brief detour to talk about metric weight. So, And this is actually really important to talking about LSD. Um, how would you describe a gram to somebody who didn't know what it was, but knew about like common objects that you could like find around the house? Uh, well, I was always, I remember being taught in school, like a paperclip. Isn't a paperclip supposed to be like a gram? Yeah, no, it's, it's uh, okay. depending on the size, it's they're, they're like the average, like you've got the small ones and the big ones, but like mm-hmm. if you take the average size, it's the perfect example of like what a gram weighs. And so if you're holding a paperclip in your hand and then you divide it into 1,000 pieces, you will have 1,000 separate milligrams. And if you take one of those pieces, those 1,000 tiny, tiny, tiny pieces, and divide it into 1,000 pieces, you get 1,000 micrograms, which is very, very, very small quantities. So to give people like 
another idea of these quantities, a common dose of ibuprofen would be 200 to 400 milligrams. So when you take a, a, an ibuprofen, most of what you're taking is actually a binding agent. Very little of it's actually ibuprofen. So on April 19th, this is why it's important, Albert Hoffman decided to intentionally dose himself with LSD. And he <laughs> chose what he thought would be a threshold dose of 250 micrograms, which is one quarter of one one thousandth of the mass of a paperclip. This is a very, very, very small dose. Yeah. The problem is, is that the threshold dose for LSD is 20 micrograms, meaning that he gave himself 12 and a half times the dose that he thought would be a threshold dose. <laughs> so yeah that's a big that that is a very big whoopsie for a pharmaceutical chemist which is what he is <laughs> so when the effects started to hit him he was like oh no i should go home again and he decided to ride his bicycle home which is why today april 19th is known as bicycle day which is kind of like the the 420 for marijuana right. users is one hundred percent is LSD. Okay. Yes, which ironically, April nineteenth is one day before four twenty. So you know, right? You could have LSD one day, and then the next day, you know, just yeah. that's a big week. You yeah, know? it's a big week. It's a lot to ask. <laughs> <laughs> hippies, hippies got a schedule to stick to. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what ended up happening was he had some pretty extreme anxiety. So he thought he was going to die. And he even entertained the idea that his neighbor might be a witch, which if you call huh. back to the Salem witch trials, was the thing that apparently people thought was happening when they had ergot poisoning. Very interesting. Strange tieback. Um, he had a doctor called to his house. The doctor was like, you're probably going to be fine. He took a little time to adjust. And after you know adapting to it a little bit, he documented that he quite enjoyed the sensations that he was feeling. And he uh, wrote that he found his mood had greatly improved. So hmm. speaking of what an acid trip is like, we might need to talk what an acid trip feels like. Okay. If you were somebody who had watched a movie like Free for Madness or Apocalypse Now or Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, but you'd never actually done LSD, how would you describe an acid trip? Um, a lot of like just distortion kind of kaleidoscopy, a lot of vivid colors, but you know, there's always that like swirly <laughs> kind mm -hmm. of, I don't know. I mean, and in my mind, I just, I either picture like hippies at Woodstock dancing, all just mm -hmm. peaceful, or I picture somebody like freaking the fuck out. But I mean, that would be kind of where my mind goes. Right. And, and uh, that's actually not too far off. Um, it's not often that like psychosis happens, but you know, it is a drug, let's be real. So that's actually what a lot of the early researchers called it was induced psychosis. The real effects of LSD, depending on the person using it, tend to be a little more subtle, though. Like what you were talking about with the kaleidoscope, things maybe uh, uh, just being a little bit distorted, maybe colors are exaggerated. Um, so I'm actually going to focus on what would be called a good trip, just for simplicity, because like bad trips are there's a million different versions of those. And that is entirely dependent on the person, right? Um, yeah. So generally what people would take is they would take 100 micrograms of LSD under the tongue on a piece of blotter paper. So about, you know, 
Hoffman was taking 250 micrograms for his first dose. So if you divide that by two and a half, that's a typical dose for people who use it recreationally. <laughs> so for the first like 10 to 20 minutes, the user won't feel much at all. But then within the first hour or so, they'll get an increased heart rate. They'll get maybe slightly jittery and some restlessness, which if you go back to what Hoffman was feeling, that all kind of makes sense. Like, yeah, you know, you're, you're starting to come up on a high and you might feel a little bit nervous about it, right? You might just feel mm-hmm. a little bit amped. Also, during this first hour, you're going to get some visual distortions. Um, and this will mostly like manifest as like a slight waviness to solid objects or some like movement in the periphery of your vision. After the first hour, though, the physical effects will decrease and like a sense of calm will take over. And so what will also happen to people is they'll get an increased susceptibility to laughter. And so like people will have like giggle fits over like really dumb shit. Like, oh, did you see how that like <laughs> leaf moved? And it's like, everybody else is like, nah, but I assume it was cool. <laughs> right. <laughs> Sounds people just awesome. Like giggling and giggling and giggling over it. Right. So this is about like the first hour, first hour and a half or so. Over hours like one through six, the visual distortions will start to increase a little bit. There will be like bursts of color, movement of otherwise still objects. So like there'll be waviness to patterns. Um, and you'll often like see patterns where they don't really exist. And so like what's most common that people will report is they'll see fractal patterns in like clouds and trees and such. And so this is why a lot of people, whenever you hear them talk about mushrooms or any sort of like psychedelic type drug, that they're usually prefer to be outside. Right. There's more to look at. Yeah. I mean, like the way that we build our houses, they're very square and rectangular. And like, you know, mm-hmm. there's some angles. Sometimes you have like a texture and some rug or whatever. Nature is the ultimate, like, here is all the textures and, you know, enjoy them how you will. Right. And so what's also going to happen during this period or what a lot of people will report is they'll just feel a sense of calm and a connectedness with other people as like well as nature. And so like you just pointed out, like, not only are there like all these patterns available outside, but like people also just feel this strong connectedness to like a tree, which, you know, most of the time (laughs) when you're walking around, you're like, okay, that's a nice tree, but like, I don't feel super connected to it. Yeah. Sometimes you just got to hug one though. You know? Yeah. And that's tree hugging hippies. You know, a lot of them do (laughs) actually just go out there and like hug a tree. (laughs) Yeah. It's really sweet. So after the peak of all this though, and again, this is like up to six hours. So it's a pretty long time for being high for off of such a tiny amount of drug. The effects will slowly wear off and the users generally report feeling content, um, but also like a feeling of tiredness. Like, They've kind of like drained their empathy or whatever. And one thing that has been reported a lot is for users that have anxiety, a lot of them report, it's like someone turned off the voice in my head. I was able to finally be calm and not think about anything, which is something that like I've actually had disagreements with my wife about because, you know, I don't have anxiety. I have major depressive disorder, but that doesn't manifest as general generalized anxiety. And so there are times when I can think about nothing. Like if I go fishing, oh my gosh, that's one of the best times I can just think about nothing and like empty my head and nothing happens. But for people with anxiety, the voice in their head like never turns off and they're not, it's not, they're not hearing voices. It's just their inner selves constantly talking to them and telling them to be worried about other things. And so like, that is a big thing that like, I didn't know other people had a problem with until my wife was like, yeah, no, not everybody can actually turn their 
turn their brain off, you know? And yeah. so, um, so that's one thing that actually like has been reported pretty commonly is like users with anxiety. Oh, I can just not think. And that's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Sounds nice. Especially these days. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so that's basically kind of like an overview of like what an acid trip um, would feel like for somebody that's, again, on a good trip and there are bad trips. Um, okay. Yeah. But, I was going to actually ask about that. Like what they got too much. Is it like what, what causes a bad trip? And so this is actually dependent on a couple of different things. One, like you just mentioned is dose. So frequently when people tend to do higher doses of it, which would be 300 micrograms or more, which is more than what Albert Hoffman accidentally decided would be a safe dose. <laughs> um, 300 <laughs> micrograms or more uh, tends to increase the risk for a bad trip. Um, and the other thing also is if you have any kind of mental disorder or you know mental struggles that you're dealing with, using psychotropic drugs may be harmful to you. And there have been quite a number of people who have had bad trips and some of them, you know, didn't come back because they committed suicide. And that's a real, right. real thing that's happened. And it's a danger. Yeah. And so the, the good trips, sure, that sounds great. But, you know, there's still a risk because it is a drug. <laughs> right. So um, that's the general effects of it. Um, and so now that we've talked about kind of what a good trip is like, what a bad trip is like. Let's real quick go back to Albert Hoffman, and that will lead into kind of the rest of the history. We just talked about discovering okay. it. So there were these were some of the things that he was feeling that day. Um, he enjoyed the experience, um, and later on, he ex experimented with it further um, here and there, not all the time. But what ended up happening was the company that he worked for patented it in 1947, and. Hmm. Based off of basically just him alone saying, yeah, this was pretty dope, <laughs> which is hilarious. <laughs> and the company that he worked for, um, they started giving it to researchers and they were like, hey, if you can find a use for this, that would be really cool because this seems to have like a very strong effect on people. And so in 1949, it was brought to the United States and researchers basically just threw it at everything that they could find, which is very much not a good way to do science. Like I'm going to put that foot down right there. <laughs> like. You don't just yeah. like, ah, we'll see what happens on people who have <laughs> different kinds of mental struggles that they're dealing with, right? Yeah. Unfortunately, that's what they did. So between 1950 and 1965, they did studies on anxiety, alcoholism, psychosis, depression, as well as basic research into the mind, which is very weird to give a psychotropic drug to do basic research into the mind, but they did. Uh, so... Um, one of those in particular, alcoholism, actually did see positive effects. This was in the 1950s. They actually found a, that 50% of the alcoholics they treated with LSD were alcohol-free a year later, which is... Really? There is no other program that we know of that has that kind of efficacy. The 12-step program, and I, I actually may be slightly off on my numbers, so like definitely crucify me if these are off, but like within a year, it's like 2% no longer wow. alcoholics at the at, at you know after a year of being in a 12 step program and i am super glad for those 2% of people who got help and people who go longer to 2 years and 3 years they also do see help with 12 step but it takes a long time and it's not as effective as 50% within a year and so like yeah these were some of the studies that they were doing um and like we talked about earlier the cia conducted experiments with lsd uh, in their mk ultra program yeah. What's really, really funny about it 
is they decided it was too unpredictable to be useful, which, you know, now that we know more about LSD, it's just kind of like, well, yeah, they just want to like go hug a tree. They're not going to like help you overthrow the Bolivian government. Like, <laughs> like, of course, <laughs> right, <yeah. laughs> like, why would you think that that would help? But they tried yeah. it and, you know, they decided it wasn't going to be very helpful. Um, so during this period, over 40,000 people were treated with LSD. And again, some of them were treated with LSD when they probably shouldn't have been, which again goes back to yeah. if you have certain mental struggles, probably not the right drug. Yeah. But outside of the hospital, psychiatrists started taking the drug recreationally because they were like, oh, that seems pretty dope. Um, and they started giving it to their friends, which is, I'm just going to say this to any of the psychiatrists out there. Y'all know that that's very unethical. You don't do that. Right, yeah. <laughs> but what ended up happening is it led to an explosion in recreational use of LSD here in the United States. I was kind of reading a little bit about it and that during like this MK Ultra program, they were using it, you know, like on unknowing subjects, like for mental hospitals and whatnot, mm -hmm. but that they were also taking volunteers so like mm -hmm. a lot of college students and stuff were like hells yeah and then it led to you know this popular recreational drug right and and like to be fair like what happened with mk ultra was like some people had their lives absolutely ruined and so one of the people that was in the mk ultra program as a subject was a man called ted kaczynski who was the unabomber yep and obviously there's still some classification on those documents or whatever um but he was there when they were actually testing lsd on subjects and so not great <laughs> you don't want to make a unabomber <laughs> so thanks please guys stop. please stop cia <laughs> um it's, it's it's one of those things that's like it's very interesting to read about but like i can't imagine like the absolute amount of damage that was done to certain people because they were you know might have been on the edge you know you you know, what is it? one third of college students are dealing with mental health problems and just like, oh, yeah. oh, you can volunteer and get an extra credit for class or maybe, you know, 20 extra bucks to take drinking on the weekend. And we're going to dose you with LSD and like interrogate you. Um, that would probably not be good for a lot of people, even if they are stable. Yeah. So, yeah, <laughs> we'd, we'd prefer if we didn't do that more. Um, so. Unfortunately, this recreational use of LSD, uh, it began to draw the attention of law enforcement in the United States. And in Shocker. 1970, <laughs> yeah, in 1970, LSD was made a Schedule One drug. So could you describe to me what a Schedule One substance is? There's schedules like one through five based on their currently accepted medical uses and their potential for physical and psychological dependence. Um, and so it's it's considered a Schedule One drug, which includes heroin, marijuana, ecstasy, and peyote. Mm -hmm. So these are considered the most like addictive, dangerous drugs. Right. Marijuana, and, really? No, okay. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> no, no, we can laugh about that for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. Um, no, and that that was 100% correct. And I would like to emphasize, according to the law, all three of those things have to be true. So they have to have a okay. high potential for abuse, and they have no currently accepted medical use, and there's a lack of accepted safety for use of the drug under medical supervision. So certain drugs like 
they can be very dangerous, but if they don't have a high potential for abuse, then and they have some medical use, then sure, we, we'll we'll schedule them lower. But if all three right, are met, which is where all the yeah, like right. hydrocodone and all these other very very addictive drugs are considered less. One hundred percent correct, harmful. and you are definitely teeing me up for the next part of this discussion. Oh, okay, <laughs> perfect. <laughs> um, so, <laughs> if one of the one or more of these criteria are not met, it'll end up as Schedule Two or below. So just some examples of Schedule 2, which are apparently less dangerous, less addictive, or have some medical use, those drugs would be methamphetamine, cocaine, fentanyl, opium, PCP, and short-acting barbiturates. Some people may not know what some of those are. We're going to revisit them just a little bit later because there's a specific comparison that I want to make. (laughs) Um, we can get back to our discussion of what was going on during the counterculture era, because this is when it was medieval. So between the 60s and 80s, LSD became a drug of choice for artists and creators, musicians, and counterculture figures. So a bunch of musicians uh, were using LSD at the time. The Beatles, Mm -hmm. The Grateful Dead, Jimi Hendrix, Pink Floyd. Mm -hmm. These were all LSD users. Uh, that were musicians. Right. Uh, Steve Jobs said that taking LSD was a profound experience and one of the most important things in my life. Actress Carrie Fisher said she loved LSD. Francis Crick, who was one of the discoverers of the structure of DNA, used LSD while he was doing his research, which is, again, as a scientist, pretty cool. Remember the last time that we talked about CRISPR and how genetic modification yeah. is going to cure like a lot of diseases mm-hmm. that would be nearly impossible without pcr polymerase chain reaction which was discovered by dr mullis who was on an acid trip when he came up with the idea really <laughs> yeah people have directly asked him about this and he said would i have invented pcr if i hadn't take taken lsd i seriously doubt it <laughs> physicist richard Feynman, he worked on the manhattan project and he invented a lot of the math that's used in physics He used LSD frequently. Aldous Huxley, he was the author of Brave New World. He was an avid LSD user. Um, I mean, just like so many artists and creators at the time were using it and specifically talked about how it was important to them. I should probably stop at this point because like, okay, it's a long list. We get it. It really did have an effect on where we are today, right? Like our iPhones, our music that we listen to on our iPhones, the art that we look at the movies that we watch on our iPhones. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like so much of this was influenced by LSD. And a lot of them would have been amazing artists without it. You don't need a drug to be good at what you do. But a lot of these particular people talked about how important to them. And so I just wanted to bring that up. So that's all fun and good. But like we talked about earlier, (laughs) there are downsides to LSD. And we should definitely talk about those. I should say, before we talk about those... (laughs) Uh, I want to play my favorite game, which is pop quiz, asshole. Oh, great. Are you ready for this? Uh, Well, yeah. Rapid fire questions. First gut reaction. Okay. All right. Okay. Jesus. So how many people die a year of alcohol poisoning? Um, shit. I don't know. College students. Let's see. Uh, (laughs) I don't know. Rapid fire, rapid fire, rapid fire. Gut reaction. 2000, 2000. That is so freaking close. I'm very mad now. Yes, it's twenty. It's twenty two hundred, just from really? alcohol poisoning. I'm actually surprised it's not more. 
Yeah. So, so I ended up getting a lot of these numbers from the NIH and the uh, uh, NIDA, which is the National Institute of Drug Abuse. Mm-hmm. I feel like I left a letter off there somewhere, whatever. It's the National Institute for Drug Abuse something. So this is where I'm getting my numbers. Just heads up on that. How many people a year die from cocaine overdose? And this is just in the U.S., actually. I should be uh, specific about that. 5,000. In the 80s, I would say it was probably higher, but now like 5,000-ish. You're not too far off. It's actually 14,000. Real close. In science, we call that an order of magnitude. You're within an order of magnitude. That's a okay. pretty good guess. Yeah. Um, well, stimulants. and by prices right, I didn't go over. So, yes. you know, there's that. <laughs> good rules. Um, stimulants like <laughs> meth. How many people die from stimulants like meth? I, uh, I would say 5,000 again. Just Again, within an order of magnitude, 12,000. Jesus. I'm going to throw I... you. Yeah, it's not great. <laughs> it's like I'm laughing, but like eh, that's actually not good. So I'm going to throw yeah. you for a bit of a loop. Tylenol. Uh, 200. Again, billion. actually very close. 200 billion. 200. Oh, <laughs> okay, <shit>. less close. <laughs> Four, 450. Really? Which is more than you would think. Beta blockers, which is a heart medication. Just like you got a bum heart and your, your doctor says, go for it. You know, take these. You'll, you'll live a little bit longer. Yeah, I take a beta blocker. So this one kind of freaks me out. Um, <laughs> uh, 12,000. No, that was actually quite a bit of an overcast. Or it's, it's around 100. Shit. So I was, not too I was just trying to get up there with cocaine. Okay. Yes. <sighs> and like, to be fair, a lot of those are older people who, who have forgotten if they've taken their dose that day. Gotcha. So still not great. We shouldn't have that happening. Right. But, you know, around 100. So this is a big boy and like it sucks right now. And we've heard a lot about it. But how many people die a year of opiate overdose? Oh, God. Um, I'm sure it's just like getting higher all the time. Um, I would say probably like 50,000. You are so close. And I love it. 60,000 people a year. Jesus Christ. Which is a lot. And like, we actually need to do something about that pretty soon. We need to get yeah. more mental health. We need to get better programs for getting people off of it because a lot of them get started when they take them for, you know, pain that they have. But all of that actually leads up to my final question for Pop Quiz Asshole. How many people a year die of LSD overdose? Can you overdose on it? Like, because I'm thinking like people might Gut hurt reaction. themselves, you know. But we're not... But we're not we're not talking about we're not talking about people who like we didn't talk about drunk driving, right? It was just overdose. Right, okay. Just you took too much and that ended up stopping your heart, essentially. So how many people a year die of LSD overdose? Like I would say zero. Can you overdose? Zero. The answer is actually zero. <laughs> the answer is one hundred percent zero. And actually to capitalize on that, all the numbers we were just talking about, those are per year. We actually have zero known cases of LSD overdose causing a death ever mm-hmm. worldwide. So it's like marijuana. Yes. Like you can't. It actually, it actually is in that case. Overdose. Okay. It, it, is, it is similar to marijuana wow. in that way. So huh. I want to be very specific about my language because you actually already brought this up and I'm really glad that you did. We're talking about overdose, not deaths caused by these drugs. Far more people die from, okay. from driving then die from alcohol poisoning and even more actually die of liver disease. And so like, just to put that in perspective, drunk driving just on its own, just drunk driving causes 10,000 deaths per year in the U S 
And an estimated 88,000 people die each year from alcohol-related causes. So that that actually makes it the third most common cause of death. But only Mm -hmm. 2,200 people die from acute alcohol poisoning, which is aka overdose. So people can and do die because of LSD. They just don't overdose from it. And right. It's when they're on bicycles and they crash and have an accident <laughs> on bicycle day. Right. Because they think they thought that their their neighbor was a witch and they just freaked out and, you know, crashed their yeah. bike into the ditch. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> or they were, you know, trying to go around some people <laughs> on the sidewalk and, you know, really cut their leg up, leg up bad and that got infected. <laughs> Death by mailbox. Yeah. I mean, it's rough. Yeah. So the reason that I'm making this point, though, is the third criteria for LSD being a Schedule One drug, which is lack of accepted safety for use of the drug under medical supervision. As far as all of our numbers say, LSD is safer than Tylenol. Right. This is the same Tylenol that you can buy over the counter at the grocery store. It's also safer yeah. than alcohol by far, which you can buy pretty much everywhere But, you know, it's safer than opioids, which are prescribed by doctors to manage pain. And in a lot of those cases, very smartly, that's what people need. In the U.S. in 2018, there were 51 opioid prescriptions written per 100 people in the U.S. Wow. That's just in the United States, 51 opioid prescriptions per 100 people. So Hmm. the the thing is, is that doesn't mean that 50% of Americans are using opioids, but that's a lot of opioids. (laughs) Yeah. That is so many. And I don't think that many people are coming off of surgery or need that long-term pain management. That's obviously a conversation that we're now starting to have that some of these, some of these, not all of them, obviously, were being improperly prescribed. Right. So while I'm talking smack on some of the drugs that are easily available, let's be real, you can, and some people do, get very seriously hurt on LSD. And so one of those things that they can do is they can drive a car. That's a really bad idea. And you know, you shouldn't right. be driving drunk. You shouldn't be driving on marijuana. You should not be driving on LSD. These are very dangerous situations to put people in. Some people hang out in high places while doing LSD. That's very much not a good idea because the world is a bit wobbly. Don't hang out in high places. Right. Um, and we already talked about it. If, if you're in a major depressive episode, you have high anxiety, you've got paranoia. No, don't, don't do this. It's not safe. Um, and, and people can and do die because of LSD. And right. my point in bringing this up is I don't want people to get like the idea that like, oh, well, this sounds all great. Like, let me just run out and take LSD and I'll be cured of my anxiety or my PTSD. I'll be cured of my alcoholism. No, that's not what drugs do. <laughs> um, <laughs> just like alcohol, LSD affects your brain chemistry, you know, and people commit suicide on LSD. They commit suicide on alcohol, you know, like Chantix was the drug to help people to stop smoking. And people got extremely depressed on it. You know, so that, you know, I just kind of want to drive that point home. (laughs) It's not the safest thing in the world. Um, It's just not dangerous in the kind of way that people think about it. I think more importantly, the problem oftentimes is with kids having access to drugs. And I know that like, okay, well, if it's available, they're good access to it. Yes, I get that. Kids make bad decisions without drugs. On drugs, those decisions get very much worse. And I'm not trying to be a dare officer here, but I cannot overstate that any drug used irresponsibly can have deadly consequences. Right. So that's that's my public service announcement. That's my after school special. (laughs) Um, Thank you, Officer Rich. Yes. 
So that being said, the safety profile for LSD is actually a lot better looking than alcohol, opiates, meth, Tylenol. So that gets us to our last section, which is why is LSD a Schedule 1 substance while meth and PCP are Schedule 2 substances? So tell me, Jamie, what are your feelings on one Richard Milhouse Nixon? <laughs> uh, well, they're not great. <laughs> Uh, just, you know, the Watergate scandal. He's a liar. He was the only president to resign. And mm-hmm. that's really all I know about him. Mm-hmm. Just his presidency is kind of a joke. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's about it. Um, well, I thought I was going to have to argue with him, argue with you about him being a terrible person. But, you know, I've already got the content. So let's go. <laughs> um <laughs> He was elected as president in 1968, and he started serving in 1969, which if you hear those years, you're going like, oh, yeah, 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 hippies and shit. Uh, So during this time, the war in Vietnam was still going on. There was a lot of hippies, and there was like a lot of civil unrest over civil rights, and there were a bunch of protests against the war. So in walks Richard Nixon, and he walks in on a law and order platform, and he decides he's going to get these hippies and these blacks under control. And before you protest the language I just used, here is a direct quote from his top aide. The Nixon White House had two enemies, the anti-war left and black people. You understand what I'm saying. We know we couldn't make it illegal to be either against the war or black. But by getting the public to associate the hippies with marijuana and blacks with heroin, and then criminalizing both heavily, we could disrupt those communities. End quote. Jesus. How do you feel about that? uh well now i hate the motherfucker oh yeah 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 so So lsd was one of the many substances that was actually swept up under this legislation because you know hippies um but the purpose of the law was not to make people safer as we just heard it was to criminalize certain groups and criminalize they did now nixon ended up leaving office i can't remember why it was some stuff i don't know uh maybe he just like (laughs) wanted to go on vacation or something got bored can't remember. Yeah, it doesn't matter. I think that was it. Mm-hmm. Something like that, you know. Uh, anyways, he left office and Gerald Ford kept the seat warm for him. But then, like, Jimmy Carter was elected and then Jimmy Carter got rejected in the next election, which led us to Ronald Reagan. How do you feel about Ronald Reagan? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, well, he's like the poster president for conservatives. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's that. Uh, yeah, that's about it. I mean, I, I know some of the, the things he did as president, mm-hmm. but like a Ron, like a Ron Contra, you know, funding right wing death squads in South American countries and Central American countries, lying to the American mm-hmm. people about it, and then admitting that he lied to the American people and going, well, I wasn't quite sure that I, I was supposed to do that. And, um, yeah. You know, Possibly, you know, just he ran up the deficit the entire time that he was in office after saying that he was going to get that under control and make smaller government. Uh, just kidding. Right. We're only going to talk about the war on drugs. <laughs> uh, I was going to say that's what my hit. My next thing was going to be was like what Nixon did for LSD and heroin. Then crack was targeted again for black people in the 80s. Yes. Crack attack. Is that, is that part of this? That's definitely 100% part of it. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. So so. I would love to talk a lot more about a lot of the things that he did wrong because no person is perfect (laughs) and um, he's one of the less perfect ones. 
but we're only going to mm-hmm. talk about the war on drugs. So old Ronnie Reagan, he was elected on law and order platform as well, just like Nixon, but he also wanted to drown a baby-sized government in a bathtub. So that's something <laughs> super great. If you remember anything that he said when he tried to get elected, awesome. Yeah. In particular, Nancy Reagan's Just Say No campaign uh, and amping up of the fears over drug abuse really pushed Americans into believing that drug abuse was the number one problem that America faced. And when I say number one, I mean number one. In 1985, drug abuse was the number one concern for 4% of Americans. In 1989, just four years later, drug abuse was the number one concern for 64% of Americans. Oh, Nancy. That's the percentage of Americans that decided it was the number one concern. Just four years. That is a huge shift. So Ronald Reagan, he oversaw the Anti-Drug Abuse Act of 1986, which established a mandatory minimum prison sentence for specific drug charges. So what ended up happening was incarceration rates skyrocketed. And we started hearing about what you had just mentioned before, the crack epidemic. And so the new law in 1986, it introduced a 100 to 1 sentencing disparity between crack and cocaine, which are literally the same drug, just in different forms. Right. And cocaine is typically used among white people because it's more expensive. Jamie, you are speaking my language. (laughs) I I was just about to ask what the difference is between crack and (laughs) cocaine, freebase. Yeah. Yep. You Rich white it. people do coke and poor black people get the same drug and it's called crack. Yep. 100%. There's literally no difference between the two. Uh, crack tends to be smoked, whereas coke tends to be snorted. That's the only difference. <laughs> it's the same exact drug. Yeah. But uh, what ended up happening was that the end result between 1983 and 2000, the number of black Americans who were incarcerated increased by 26 times. So to put that number in perspective, that is a 2,600% increase in 17 years. There is absolutely no indication that drug usage increased during that time. And in fact, during that time, crime decreased. Yet, (laughs) Black Americans were incarcerated at rates 26 times of what they were in 1983 in just 17 years. That is so big of an increase, it boggles the mind. Yeah, that makes me want to cry, to be honest. No, it really does. That being as it is, I would actually like to move on to something less depressing. (laughs) So let's talk about maps. When I say maps, what do you think? Geography? Just kidding. That's obviously the first thing. But since I knew we were talking about this, I know what you're referring to. (laughs) Uh And... The MAPS stands for the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, which is, I mean, you'll be able to describe it much better, but it's its basically just like a nonprofit research and educational organization mm-hmm. um, that studies these drugs and tries to find what, like beneficial uses for mm-hmm. psychedelics and pot. Yeah, 100%. Okay. I mean, that's 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 it right there. MAPS, like you already said, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, it was founded in 1986 by one Rick Doblin. Um, Rick Doblin is a researcher who decided to dedicate his life to the research of psychedelic substances, particularly their use in a medical setting. And when I say that he decided to devote his life, I literally mean in 1986, he was like, okay, this is what I'm doing for the rest of my life. 
Wow. So since their founding, they advocate for, they fund, they conduct medical research using psychedelic drugs, which includes cannabis, MDMA, LSD, and psilocybin. Um, they've done research in particular with PTSD, depression, anxiety, cluster headaches, and opiate addiction. Now, this is the thing that then we get to the question about, right? Wait, LSD is a Schedule One drug. I thought in order to be Schedule One, you have to have no medical benefit. Right. Which, technically speaking, yes, that is what being Schedule One means. However, these studies uh, need to be done to actually establish a medical benefit. And so they fall outside of typical medical treatment because they are research-based and they tend to be uh, medicines of last resort, mm -hmm. in particular, treatment-resistant depression, treatment-resistant PTSD, treatment-resistant anxiety, um, people that are at the end of their ropes. And if they don't get any other help, they're in a lot of danger. And so the point of these studies is to establish a safety profile. It is to establish what effect they can have for people that need this kind of help. And all of these are necessary to actually reschedule these drugs, which we have seen are not quite as dangerous as being Schedule 1. And they definitely do have some medical benefit, but we have to have the research to show that. And so MAPS is the right. whole plan for getting that good data on both of those accounts. And so <laughs> they're currently conducting trials in the United States and elsewhere. And that's where we stand today. This is a little over 50 years after LSD was first criminalized. We're just now getting back into researching it. There's dozens of studies being done worldwide for treatment for a bunch of different disorders and diseases. And we're also finding out what the potential for abuse might be because you know, the, the Justice Department actually says that it's not typical that people get addicted to it. We still need to know what the actual data says, right? We can't just assume, oh, okay, well, the Justice Department said it's probably fine. No, we need medical trials to figure out what that risk profile is. Right. And to this day, it actually still remains a relatively popular drug. Um, there's an estimated like 20 million US, US residents uh, that admit to having used the drug at least once. Um, in terms of abuse, we don't have a lot of great data. Again, the Justice Department does not consider it an addictive drug and tolerance tends to develop quickly, which means, you know, the next time you take it, you're just not going to get as high. And right. but the last part is like, we don't know what a lethal dose is considering how little you need to take of it to have an effect and how much people have taken in the past. That's still something we need to test, you know, maybe in animal models to see what the actual top a top dose could be. Right. Um, but again, we right. don't have overdose data. And so that's something that we do need to figure out. But yeah, that's where we are today. Yeah. So I, I've seen some stuff with um, like MDMA, you know, being used to help with um, PTSD. And they kind of refer to it as like assisted psychotherapy, where they talk you through and try, kind of try to take you back to whatever incident happened and like mm -hmm. guide you through it and whatever. But are there any other like specific things that you saw that's being used to be treated for? Well, one of the things in, in particular with LSD, one of the things that they talk about is it um, gives your brain an opportunity to uh, explore pathways that it wouldn't have before. Basically, um, when your your brain is just kind of just doing its day-to-day -day thing, it's in this default mode network. And LSD, among the other psychotropic drugs, uh, tends to make it easier to fire on networks that are not the default mode. And so what they're thinking for LSD in particular is that it could really help with addiction uh, because okay. it allows you to start firing on new paths 
And what the, the whole thing in neuroscience is, is that neurons that fire together, wire together. And so if your day-to-day -day is always doing this drug, and it's always, this helps me relax. And if I don't get it, I feel very unrelaxed. I feel anxious. I feel depressed. I feel all of these things. LSD is being looked at to break that connection, at least temporarily, and allow you to fire along different paths. And then over time, you can reinforce those new paths that don't go down the addiction pathway. Like we, like we talked about, you know, during the 50s, they, during the, sorry, during the 50s and 60s, they actually were doing studies on alcoholics and they found it to be quite effective. And we still need to redo those studies because you don't just trust one study and assume that that's good enough. Um, and particularly back in the 50s and 60s, the standards were a bit different. And so like those still need to be done. But in particular, LSD looks to be like it could be very useful in um, addiction. It also looks like it could, be, it could be very useful in depression. And the reason wow. for that is actually very complicated. And we're not quite sure what the neurochemistry is on that. We do know that depression is a multifactorial condition um, that it can be, it can actually be just be caused by environmental factors or it could be caused by chemical imbalance in your brain. It is one of the few things that is uh, an upset to the normal human condition that can be caused by purely environmental things or purely chemical things. Now, both can contribute um, and, and cause it. But the fact that LSD has actually shown quite a bit of efficacy in treatment-resistant depression, we don't exactly know why that would be. Because if it's just environmental, sure, default mode network, that would, that would make sense, right? Just like the addiction thing. Right. If it's a chemical imbalance, how in the hell would LSD help with that? Because you don't use it all the time. You take it, you go through a session with a therapist over hours and hours, and you come out the other side. And they've actually reported fairly high rates of curing people of their depression with these LSD sessions. That's very weird. And we need to figure out what's going on there uh, before we can really lean into, oh, yeah, LSD can help with certain kinds of depression. Which ones? Oh, well, it could be either chemical or situational. <laughs> we don't know. That's not, right. that's not a scientific way to think about treating people's illnesses, right? We need to know how it's working and why it's working that way. Oh, yeah. But it's just yeah. fascinating to think that something could be much more effective possibly than the drugs and, you know, right. still kind of a stigma with depression and right. not wanting to be medicated and then medication that has all sorts of other effects that aren't good. It's just interesting that there might be another option that could be safe and far more effective when used properly, you know? Yeah, it's just in conjunction cool. with a therapist. And Yeah, who would have thought? Know, you know, I think for people that, that have treatment resistant where therapy doesn't work, where the other drugs don't work, if we can get a safety profile on LSD, if we can get a safety profile on MDMA, you know, some of these other drugs that we could talk more in depth about, this could be life-saving for some people because, you know, mm -hmm. suicide is one of the, you know, what, three most common causes of death between for kids between, you know, 18 and uh, 30. That's, that's heartbreaking mm -hmm. that they have so much of their life ahead of them. And none of the drugs thus far have worked. None of the therapy has worked. Well, we found that this can be effective for some people. So, you know, in conjunction with therapy, I think that, that you know, it, it could be something that could actually save a lot of lives. And it being schedule one does not help that. It's like if we could fast forward 20 years, it'd be fascinating to see what advancements and just research has been done on it. So that's pretty cool. Rich, thank you so much for doing another episode with me. I always have so much fun and learn a lot. 
And Rich has actually agreed to do some future episodes, which we're going to be calling Getting Rich on Science, right? Um, So I'm really excited about those. So look for those episodes in the future. If you're enjoying the podcast, please support Know What I Heard by telling your friends about the podcast or rating, reviewing, subscribing, all those important things. They help get new listeners and help keep the podcast going. So if you can do that, it would be greatly appreciated. If you have any questions, comments, show ideas, please feel free to email me. The email address is knowwhatiheard at gmail.com. You can also send a message or a comment through the Facebook page, Know What I Heard Podcast. And until next time, hey, know what I heard?